Hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Robert Spencer, director of the JihadWatch.org and a Shulman Fellow at the David Horowitz Freedom Center, join us to discuss visiting the implications if Muhammad never existed. Mr. Spencer will speak for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Robert Spencer. Thank you, Stacy, uh, and thank you all for being here. The question is really uh, quite fascinating and there are a lot of facets to it, but very briefly, one of the main reasons why this is important is not just as a simple academic exercise. Uh, obviously, we know that historically, the rise of the higher criticism of historical criticism in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries uh, made for revolutions in both Judaism and Christianity, allowing for the uh, development of liberal traditions of massive reinterpretation of some of the uh, traditional texts and a uh, completely different form really of both religions that had not existed previously. There has never been anything like that in Islam. And of course, if there were, it is likely that it would be uh, shorn of its martial and aggressive expansionist aspects. So the question of did Muhammad exist is just the opposite of a, uh, a well, it's anything but dry, but it's not just an academic exercise. It's one with extraordinary implications for the uh, geopolitical situation today. And it might seem jarring to people to know that there are indeed very serious questions about whether there was even a person named Muhammad who was anything like the person depicted in early Islamic literature, and whether if there was a person named Muhammad, if he was anything like that figure that we have from early Islamic literature. And this in turn is very important because the Quran says in chapter 33, verse 21, that you have in the messenger a, an excellent example. And that is taken in a maximalist sense by Islamic scholars to mean that you have an excellent example in Muhammad for everything, that if he did it, it's good and right. The thing is, however, and very few people know this actually in the West, is that Muhammad is only mentioned by name four times in the Quran. And those four do not contain any specific information about what he was like. So when one finds that one is told Muhammad is an excellent example, there's nothing in the Quran to flesh out what exactly that would mean and how Muslims should follow his example. For that, you need to go to the Hadith, the very voluminous collection of thousands upon thousands of traditions about Muhammad's words and deeds, reports about Muhammad's words and deeds. These are the foundation for Islamic law, the basis for all the aspects of the imitation of Muhammad that Muslims follow today, and most notably Islamic jihadis follow today. And the unknown factor, or the little noted factor, I should say, about the Hadith is that they date primarily from the ninth century. There is some literature about Muhammad from the middle of the eighth century, but even that does not exist today, except in a recension that also was published in the ninth century. Muhammad died 
according to Islamic tradition, in the year 632, in the first third of the seventh century. So what we have is a situation in which this extraordinary voluminous amount of material, I have 30 volumes of Hadith here in my office, and I don't have nearly all of it. This extraordinary voluminous amount of material actually dates from some 200 years after he's supposed to have lived. Now, if you imagine somebody living in 1820 and only now is there written material about him, you can imagine that there is some considerable slippage between the written material that is just now appearing and the actual historical figure in question. Uh, not only that, but there is no trace before that of an oral tradition. Most people, when they are confronted with these facts, Islamic apologists and Western historians as well, they will say that these things, this is not a problem at all because this was an oral culture. This was a culture in which people memorized uh, extraordinary amounts of material. And they uh, adduce as witness of that, the fact that, for example, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey were originally uh, passed on verbally, were not written down. We only have uh, Homer's Iliad, a copy of it from dating about, dating from about 800 years after he is supposed to have lived. And so people uh, say, this is the same situation. You have a culture where there is uh, prodigious feats of memory, where there are prodigious feats of memory and they're taken for granted. This is even true today in the Islamic world as we have in the Pakistani madrasas, tiny little children, young boys aged five and 10 memorizing the whole Quran. And they don't even speak Arabic, but they memorize the whole thing. And so maybe this is another indication of that. The problem, however, with that argument is that there is no trace of even the existence of this material before the ninth century. That is, there would be some allusion, some mention of the fact that there was a prophet Muhammad. But if you go back to the seventh century, there is virtually no mention that any person, any such person existed. All the while, the Arabs are storming out of Arabia and conquering the Middle East and North Africa and Persia and venturing into India. And by a hundred years after Muhammad, excuse me, by a hundred years after Muhammad is supposed to have died, entering Spain as well. So you have this massive empire stretching from Spain to India. And there is virtually no mention of the person who is supposed to be the guiding figure that made those conquests happen. Now, this is extremely curious in light of the fact that we do have abundant record from this period, primarily written by the conquered people. Take, for example, Sophronius, the Christian leader of Jerusalem, the patriarch of Jerusalem. Uh, at, at this time, the Byzantine Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire was quite weak. And the uh, effective governing authority in Jerusalem was the patriarch. So according to Islamic tradition, it was Sophronius who welcomed the Caliph Umar, the leader of the Muslims around the year 637 into Jerusalem after he had conquered the city and showed him around and invited him to pray in the church of the Holy Sepulcher, the church that uh, according to Christian legend contains the tomb of Christ from which he rose from the dead. 
It's a very important holy site in Christianity. And Sophronius invites Umar to pray there. Umar declines magnanimously and says, I'm, going, I'm not going to go into the church because if I did, my followers would claim it for a mosque and I want to leave it for you Christians. This story is told to this day as if it were a historical account and as if it were evidence of the tolerance of Islam, the magnanimity of the conqueror, and of the conquest itself. However, we have an abundance of writings that still exist by Sophronius himself. And it is noteworthy that in that abundance of writings, he writes a great deal about the conquest of Jerusalem by not Muslims. He never mentions the word Muslims. He never says that they had a new prophet, a new religion, a new holy book, nothing. He never speaks about Umar. He says that we were conquered by the Saracens, by the Hagarians, people who came out of Arabia, and they laid waste, they burned the churches, they claimed to be the true followers of Abraham, but never does he say, and they say they have this prophet Muhammad, they say they have this Quran, they say they have this uh, new religion, nothing like that. And so you've got to wonder, why is it that they never appeared to mention this all-important fact that's supposed to be the motivating foundation behind the attack on Jerusalem itself? Why do they never mention it? You see, this is much stronger than your average argument from silence. An argument from silence is generally taken to be a weak argument, that somebody who doesn't mention something, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And that is very true. But in this case, the silence is unanimous. It's not just Sophronius. It's all across North Africa. <coughs> it's the Persians. It's the Indians. When they are conquered, they write about the conquest. They write about the conquerors. And yet, never do they give any idea that there is anybody named Muhammad at all. Now, Islamic apologists like to point to a... Uh, writing by a priest, a Christian priest in the year 640, known as Thomas the Presbyter in Syria. And he does mention that the uh, conquerors came from the, they were part of the Tayyaye of Muhammad. And so uh, a lot of people think, well, wait a minute, everything that you're saying here, it's based on uh, pure conjecture and wishful thinking, perhaps on your part, because here's mention of Muhammad, and yet that document also says that he is alive leading armies into Syria, whereas according to Islamic tradition, he died and the armies went into Syria after he died. And that he was preaching the coming of the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, which Muhammad never did. And there are numerous other details in which this and other very early mentions that are considered to be about Muhammad actually don't line up with the canonical story that we have from this ninth century literature. This is an almost completely unexplored field, but there have been a number of courageous scholars who have been doing extraordinary work on this. And there's a great deal more that can be said about it. I'm sure we'll get to some of it in the question and answer period. But uh, <clears throat> in the book that the Middle East Forum uh, graciously enabled me to publish, Did Muhammad Exist? I uh, tried to bring to a popular audience some of the main features of these investigations. 
and to introduce to a wider public the idea that uh, contrary to the assumption that Muhammad's career took place in uh, what the 18th century French scholar Ernst Renan said the, was the full light of history. Contrary to that, it's very dark. There is no full light of history. The uh, early decades of Islam or of the Arab conquests are notably devoid of mention of this all-important figure. And so then, of course, the uh, question becomes, why would anybody do this? Why would anybody invent such a person and such a religion? And that takes us back to the reason, uh, the, the, the nature of empires of the day. At the time that Islam arose, the two great powers were the Byzantine Empire, also known, of course, as the Eastern Roman Empire, and the Persian Empire. The Byzantine Empire was Christian and the Persian Empire was Zoroastrian. This was not just a demographic matter of the predominant religion of their adherents. This was the whole unifying principle and raison d'etre of both of those empires. They didn't have in those days parliaments and uh, <clears throat> constitutions and the like that supposedly hold nation states together today. In those days, they had re common religion. And this is one of the reasons why the Byzantine Empire was so intent on defining the uh, particular details of Christian doctrine regarding who Jesus Christ was and so on, because this was a matter of who was going to be a full citizen in the empire and who was not. And it was the uh, common religion of all the adherents that was considered to be the unifying principle of the empire. It was the same thing with the Zoroastrians. So when the Arabs who professed a vague monotheism that they traced back to Abraham stormed out of Arabia and amassed this huge empire, they recognized the inadequacy, the inadequacy of their religion, their, their, their rather creedily vague religion at that point for unifying their new empire. And so they developed out of Jewish traditions, Christian traditions and Zoroastrian traditions, primarily a new religion that was martial, aggressive and expansionist, just as you would expect it would be as a religion that was developed by warriors in order to perpetuate and defend an empire. And so uh, this is the fundamental exploration of the book, Did Muhammad Exist? I'm happy to announce that uh, after many years, I've been able to uh, complete a revised and expanded edition because there have been quite a few new discoveries and new investigations in this field since I wrote the first book. And so that will be out in July from Bombardier Books, Did Muhammad Exist? Revised and Expanded Edition. Uh, thank you all very much for being here, you can get more details about that in the book. And if you have questions, uh, comments, death fatwas, etc., I am here now for that. All right, thank you so much. Uh, we have quite a few questions coming in. First one is, uh, what do you think about the theories of taking text from the Torah and the Bible and making up the Quran? Well, there's a lot of evidence for that. Uh, for example, you take the uh, story in Surah, um, Surah. 29, Alankabut, the spider, about uh, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And uh, there, there, there are all sorts of strange features in it that are not in 1 Kings 10 
the source of the story. Uh, in 1 Kings 10, you have the meeting between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, but in the Quran, chapter 29, you have all this detail about uh, talking animals and Solomon sending out a bird, calling a conference of all the animals and the hoopoe doesn't show up and he's very angry and is gonna kill the hoopoe, except the hoopoe tells him, look, I've visited this incredible kingdom that you is ruled by this queen who uh, you have to meet. And then they meet and all these strange things happen. It's a very bizarre story. And uh, it is based upon the second Targum of Esther that is a uh, Talmudic document from that's been dated from anywhere between the fourth and the 11th centuries that contains pretty much all those details and others that uh, I could get into. But the fact is, these are not in the Bible. These are from the Jewish tradition. Same thing with uh, the Quran's assertion in chapter four, uh, verse 157, about Jesus not being crucified, but it appeared so, it seemed to them as if he were. This is based on Gnostic Christianity, which was a Christianity that denied the uh, reality of the incarnation of Christ, said that he was actually just a phantasm because it's actually physical matter that is evil. And so the savior from physical matter did not take on physical matter. He just appeared to, and he was not crucified as a result. This is the, these, these Christians, these Gnostic Christians were exiled from the empire, the Byzantine empire, precisely because they were considered heretics. They went over east into Arabia and there, thence their doctrines were incorporated into Islam. There are innumerable examples of this. A lot of them are in the book, Did Muhammad Exist? And if you'll permit me another book that, that will be out in November, the critical Quran uh, that I'm doing is the first edition of the Quran to actually examine the uh, <clears throat> derivations of the stories, variant readings of various verses, and other aspects of the book that generally Islamic apologists actually deny even exist, but they're going to be all in this edition of the Quran coming out in November, the critical Quran. Thank you. Um... So the main question, what does it matter if Muhammad existed or not? The Muslims believe fervently that he did all around the globe. Well, like I said at the very beginning of the presentation, liberal Judaism and liberal Christianity, whether you approve of them or not, have radically transformed how many Jews and Christians have understood their religion and have made for the context in which many traditional practices were modified or abandoned altogether. Were there to be a liberal modernized Islam that proceeded from the basis that Muhammad is more fable than fact and more legend than historical figure. It is very likely that such an Islam would also discard the doctrines of warfare against and subjugation of unbelievers that have so plagued the world for 1400 years and still do today. And that's why this matters. Understood, thank you. How do you explain the Sunnah? And what about Muhammad's companions in the Umayyad dynasty? There is no record of those people until the ninth century literature that I was discussing. There is no more indication that Abu Bakr or Umar or Uthman existed than there is that Muhammad existed. <coughs> Excuse me. The first caliph of the Muslims for whom we have actual external historical att attestation and, and contemporary attestation 
seventh century attestation, not ninth century attestation, is Muawiyah, who became the caliph in 661. And even Muawiyah was putting crosses on his public buildings, which is extraordinarily strange in light of the fact that Muhammad is supposed to have said that Jesus is going to come back and break the cross because it's an insult to Allah. Now, if you understand that Muhammad is made to say that in the ninth century, and that he didn't say that at all in the seventh century, then it starts to make sense that Muawiyah would have crosses on his buildings in the seventh century. The prohibition hadn't come down yet. It wasn't that he was just ignoring it. But interestingly enough, <clears throat> it was the Abbasids, the dynasty of the Muslims that came into power in the year 750, that started to develop the Muhammad legend. And so they accused the Umayyads who had preceded them of being irreligious. And if you think about that, it's an extraordinary claim because what they're saying is that the dynasty that took power just a few decades after Muhammad immediately discarded everything he taught them and started doing other things that violated what he taught them. Now, how likely is that? I think that strains credulity. It's much more likely that the Umayyads did not do those things and observe those prohibitions because they hadn't been instituted yet. And that it was the Abbasids who made them up and then retrojected them back into the time of Muhammad. And in order to explain their absence during the Umayyad period said the Umayyads were unreligious. <clears throat> Witness the fact that there are some very strange traditions preserved in the Hadith literature. For example, uh, Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who was the governor of Iraq in the late 7th century, the 690s, and in the early part of the 8th century, the 710s, there's supposedly an old man who says, we never read the Quran in mosques until the time of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, which would mean that the Umayyads before Hajjaj from the 660s to the 690s were unreligious. And for that matter, the rightly guided caliphs, the four caliphs after Muhammad up until 661 were also unreligious because they didn't have the Quran read in mosques. But <clears throat> if you think about it from the other way around, that it's the later addition to put the Quran recitation in mosques once the Quran is developed. And then you have to explain it. So you have a story in which you say that this later governor institutes the Quran reading in mosques. This explains why you don't have the Quran before this, when actually it's not that it was being ignored by unreligious rulers, it's that it didn't exist yet. And it was developed at the time that this tradition was developed in order to explain its previous absence. Fascinating. Uh, so we have a question in from one of our viewers that says, I'm working on a law review article about imperialism and colonialism. I'm finding that Islam appears to be the most pervasive colonial force in history and modern Islamic activism is very much an imperialist movement. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily imperialist movement. And I can recommend Ephraim Karsh's excellent book, Islamic Imperialism. <clears throat> also, if you'll permit me yet another uh, plug of my own book, The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, which is the story of 1400 years of Islamic imperialism laid out in detail from Islamic texts, from Islamic sources. Uh, the, the thing is, is that the seeds of that imperialism are in the Islamic texts themselves, that they uh, are written in the Quran the, the idea of fight them until religion is all for Allah, chapter 8, verse 39 of the Quran, 
this, if you fight them until religion is all for Allah, that's open-ended warfare until everyone is either Muslim or submit to, submitting to Islamic rule. So <clears throat> that's your basis for your imperialism right there. And if it does not come from the time of Muhammad, it comes from the rulers themselves placing that in the holy book in order to justify their own continued aggression. Thank you. Is there any evidence to Jewish tribes in Arabia allying with and being killed by Muhammad and his followers? The only evidence we have of that is once again, ninth century literature. We have that in Ibn Hisham's recension of Ibn Ishaq Sirat, Sirat Rasulullah, which is the biography of the prophet of Allah that he's, Ibn Ishaq is supposed to have written in the 720s or 730s. But as I said earlier, it does not exist. We don't have a copy of that. The only copy we have is Ibn Hisham writing 100 years later and copying large portions of Ibn Ishaq. And we only own Ibn Ishaq. And we only have his word that he copied them faithfully and did not add in more traditions that he had gotten elsewhere. Uh, Ibn Hisham is writing around the same time as the Hadith literature of Bukhari and Muslim and the other uh, notable Hadith scholars, all ninth century. And all that material about the Jews betraying Muhammad and Muhammad putting them death as a result, it all comes from that. There is no trace of it before that, any more than there's a trace of anything in Muhammad's biography from before that. <clears throat> And were, is there any true information in the early histories by Ibn Ishaq and Al-Waqidi? Any way yeah. of separating the reliable from the unreliable in these books? No, none whatsoever. There is absolutely no way to do that because they base them, their own traditions, Ibn Ishaq and Al-Waqidi and Tabari and all the other early historians of Muhammad's life, they all base their uh, the reliability of their stories on the Isnad chain. The Isnad chain is the chain of transmitters from Muhammad's time. That is, if you look into Ibn Ishaq or Ibn Hisham, because we don't have Ibn Ishaq, remember. Ibn, if you look into the actual book, you will see that it says that Aisha or one of the other people around Muhammad, Ali ibn Abi Talib, or one of the people around Muhammad told the story to uh, Uthman who told the story to so-and-so and you have in other words the person who passed it along it's a long game of telephone you remember the game of telephone from when you were kids and <clears throat> uh, I tell Stacy and Stacy tells somebody else and then it goes 10-15 people down the line and it's completely different from what I told Stacy and it's the same thing here we're supposed to believe that these traditions were passed on from these early people through two centuries without any alteration. In the first place, that strains credulity well beyond the breaking point in itself. But also, we have no record that can independently verify those Isnad chains. So we're just taking the word of Ibn Isham or Al-Waqidi or Tabari or Bukhari or whoever that these people passed on that, that story. But the stories themselves, if you start looking closely into the Hadith literature, the stories of Muhammad are so contradictory. There's so many times when in one story he says one thing and in another story he says the opposite because various 
factions among the Muslims were making up stories in order to justify their own positions. They would make up stories of Muhammad. So it's just as easy. It's, we know that the stories were forged. In other words, even Bukhari collected 600,000 hadiths and then rejected 593,000 of them as forged. It's only kept 7,000. I think Bukhari was absolutely right. Those 593,000 were forged, but so were the other 7,000. If you can forge the stories, it's just as easy to forge the chain of transmitters and to make it appear to be authentic. And so we have absolutely no way to verify any of that literature. And this is something that Western scholars have not faced. As a matter of fact, quite the contrary, they have deliberately ignored it. <clears throat> Take, for example, Montgomery Watt, one of the foremost scholars of Muhammad, and he wrote the massive two-volume biography of Muhammad, Muhammad at Mecca and Muhammad at Medina. And in those biographies, he uses the Sirah literature, the Hadith literature, to tell us what Muhammad said and did. But he ignores it when it has him doing bizarre things or when there are legends about him speaking to Moses and speaking to Jesus and so on. He ignores all that and acts as if the rest of it is a sober historical account. Actually, you can't play that way if you're gonna be faithful to uh, any kind of historical rigor in dealing with the sources. You have to understand that the Hadith you either take or leave the Sirah, you either take or leave, because it's all on the same level. And if you don't take some of it, you have to not take all of it. Or if you take, all, take some of it, you have to take all of it and report not only that Muhammad did the Hijra from Mecca to Medina, but also that he flew to uh, paradise on a winged white horse with a human head. Uh, and in reality, there's no basis for any of it. It's only uh, Islamic legend. And we only need to understand the contents of that legend so that we understand what Muslims believe today, because obviously that has a lot to do with the geopolitical situation. <clears throat> Thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. We have quite a few unanswered questions. Uh, can you just tell us one more time where we can find your book? Yeah, Did Muhammad Exist? The revised and expanded edition. It will be out from Bombardier Books in July, and it is available now for pre-order on Amazon. And then in November, watch for the critical Quran. There's never been a Quran like it that uh, shows exactly how uh, tenuous the foundations of the book really are. Thank you so much. So we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Mr. Spencer, for taking Pleasure. time to speak with us. Uh, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks.